Welcome to the Liberty Portal podcast by libertyportal.com, your gateway to a free society. On this show, we examine current events through a libertarian lens, seeking truth, cracking jokes, and providing you with better arguments to advocate for a freer world. The show is hosted by David Rand, political strategist and philosophy nerd widely known as the devil of Montana politics. Henri Pellerin, Liberty Portal founder and editor, entrepreneur, and fitness enthusiast. And myself, Joe Sheehan, filmmaker and Liberty Portal producer. David, welcome back to the Liberty Portal podcast, episode number three. How are you? Happy to be here. I'm very excited. I'm feeling great. Awesome. You you just got back from uh, DC, is that right? I did. Yeah. My job requires me to go to the swamp uh, about once a quarter, a couple times a year, just kind of depending on different projects we're working on. Um, It's a big organization, a lot of different people to collaborate with. And of course, every now and then I got a lobby. So this time was more of a meeting with folks and chatting with uh, internally to the organization and just make sure we're all heading in the right direction. Awesome. Are there any important, exciting things you guys are working on right now that are worth talking about? Yeah. You know, on the, I think it's going to be a really great year. A lot of legislative sessions are coming together. I got to talk to a a lot of folks that are in charge of those sessions across the country and uh, they're, they got a lot of great plans. I mean, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of education reform move across many state legislatures. Fiscal reform looks like it's on the docket for a lot of places. Uh, the the inflation is a terrible thing, but it does create a lot of awarenesses about government spending and the effects of deficit spending and the effects of the potential recession we're going to with that community for revenue. Uh, and then lastly, people will look back and say, how did we get here? And they say, where can we cut something? So uh, there's there's a lot of stuff over there, regulatory reform, all that kind of stuff. All, a lot of really exciting stuff happening. Awesome. What does education reform look like this session? Okay. So in Montana, it's one thing. In other states, it's another, right? So Montana, we're limited by our Supreme Court. Montana is one of the most progressive Supreme Courts in the country. We, uh, they, they, they go against their own decisions more often than almost any other Supreme Court in the country. Really? Yeah. That's, there's an interesting study by that, by the Independence Institutes. Um, I'm forgetting his name right now. Very famous law professor out of University of Montana uh, did that study. And, you know, and then they're not all bad, right? They do some things that are good, but uh, overall, very, very progressive. So the Montana Constitution has a couple constraints that would, you know, be a challenge that are challenged anytime you do education choice reform. Uh, and it's most likely that, you know, the more progressive Supreme Court would decide against it. So the range is narrower there. Uh, of what we can do. Uh, but I do think there's are some exciting things there, like uh, open enrollment, things like, hey, if you're a student and you're a homeschool student, you just want to take one class uh, at a at the local school, most schools won't allow you to do that. You got to take at least three classes uh, or do extra stuff, you know, or it's kind of up to an arbitrary decision by a administrator about whether or not you get to do that. This would guarantee that right because you are paying for it. <laughs> it is in our property taxes. And so you're paying for the service. You should get access to the service by right because that's kind of the contractual agreement that we supposedly operate under. Uh, another one is cross-district enrollment. So, um, sorry, in open enrollment is can be getting into that one class. It could also be I live in District 1. I want to get to District 2. That money should follow the student from one district to the other. You know, that isn't talking about public school open enrollment where you're going to public school and the money's falling on that kid, uh, but it is intra-district for public schools is, is a good step for Montana to take. Uh, and lastly, I think in Montana, we will we will very likely see a nice battle on charter schools, uh, and that, that will be an interesting 
an interesting fight. Super yeah. cool. Yeah. I look forward to hearing more about that as things progress. Yeah, thanks. Sweet. And you mentioned fiscal reform. Like, what what is that? Uh, what form does that take? That's everything from like limitations on re- revenue, um, rev- limitations on spending, how we do our budgeting, how we increase taxes or decrease taxes, and things like that. Uh, truth in taxation is a big push from quite a few folks that I've seen. Uh, just making it clear to taxpayers about where your money's going and why it's leaving your pockets. Uh, and, you know, uh, for Montana, what I see is some focusing on local governments, uh, local governments in Montana have been spending like gangbusters for a long time. Good example, Bozeman has spent at a clip from 2019 to 2021 at an 18% increase. Really? So if you just go by population plus inflation, we're talking about 5%, 6% increase, right? So that's how much their resources are costing more. That's how much more people they have to serve. They probably, their budgets, if they followed that trajectory, that would be about that. But they said, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're going to do three times more than that. Are you kidding me? Right. That's 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 how much more they spend. And now a lot of that's just, see what happens, right, is they are limited by how much revenue they get by the mill system, which is a very complex property tax system. Don't want to dive into all that. I don't think I understand all of it. But what it does is it says they they have to balance their budget. That's the only fiscal requirement they have. So if they get in a, get in, in a given fiscal year, 8% more because the, the, property tax, the property values have gone up by 8%, they can spend all 8% of that. There's no limitation on their spending. There's only a limitation on how much revenue they can bring in, and that is half of inflation. So if inflation is 12%, then they can bring in 6%. 6%, they can bring in 3%. But that's the only that's the that's the percentage limitation. There's no limitation on the total amount of value increase that might bring in more revenue. So does that okay, so that's yeah. hard to explain. If you're at a hundred, if you say your house was worth a hundred thousand dollars and and year one, by year two it's worth $150,000. That's a substantial increase in the value of your house, right? Uh, but even more so if it's you know two hundred thousand dollars, that you are taxed on the on the value of your property that year. So that means you're getting that much more money out of your pocketbook, even though you're not getting more value out of your house. You're getting the same amount of value. You're paying more tax dollars. Uh, so they, as soon as the local governments get that money, they could spend it all. So we'll probably go after something that that affects that. So this would just basically limit the amount of that money that they could spend. Right. Got it. Right. Well, Just basically like- saying you can't spend it all. You got you got to have some limitation. Uh, it, it isn't just, uh, it, it, you are there to provide a service, not to, uh, you know, just get money to play with. Right. It should be somehow tied to the increase in the population using the services, mm-hmm. for example. And probably other inflationary things. So like the cost of staples go up or the cost of paper and they, they need to do paper and they need to have that. The government has a cost of business too. For sure. So as that increases, you should be able to do it. There are other measures too. Uh, I would very much support a uh, after-tax income increase limitation. So if say if you're in the city of Great Falls or Sioux Falls or I don't know, wherever you're from and government uh, and your you know, after tax income only goes up by 1%. Why would we have government spend more than 1% in that given year? For sure. Um, another one is uh, gross domestic product or per capita gross domestic product. So gross domestic product increases, the government can spend more. But if it goes down or if it stagnates, government doesn't spend more. That kind of efficiency measure is a great one because then what you're, you're weighing, you're creating a set of incentives for government to want a faster growing economy so they can grow their budgets. Where the current system says, you know, as long as asset prices increase, mainly in your house, uh, government can spend more. 
which is a function that uh, I don't think many households want to see because that means higher gas prices, higher grocery bills, right? not necessarily more income to their family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Fascinating. Well, cool. And uh, I assume you've already turned in your your gas stove to the uh, the, the gas stove <laughs> Gestapo. Yeah, yeah. From my cold, dead fingers, will you take our gas stove? <laughs> <laughs> oh, seriously. Oh man, I can't believe that. That that is uh, in this environment where you would be like, you know, what what our real priority is taking away people's gas stove or at least stopping the sale of new gas stones in the United States right. is just as bad, right? It's it's just. Not as bad. That's not quite right. But it's definitely a a dumb, ridiculous, offensive thing. Highly memeable, though. At, yeah. at very least, I'm I'm sure you've seen the picture of like the you know the cops when they make a drug bust, they like pose in front of these like mountains of cocaine or whatever. Yeah, they've, they've got the guys gathered around the stove, you know, gas stove <laughs> unit written on their flak jackets. It's it's gold. The internet is really killing this one. There's that one. Uh, I like the uh, don't tread on me with just the the stove on the yellow flag. It's perfect. It's perfect. It, what it demonstrates is how little faith the government has in us, right? That we are not smart enough to weigh the trade-offs between vapors in the air of our house and an electric stove. We can weigh trade-offs. Trade-offs on, it, in this, it, it's the safety as an absolute value question to dig into the philosophy of it. Removing gas stoves says that the number one most important thing in your life, I'm deciding this value for you, John Q. Public, is safety. And you're like, wait, 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 no, it's not. What if it's the amount of time it takes to boil water? Right. You know, who I've got is, stuff to do. Who's to say what the right value is? This is where this is where the this is where the liberals and the nationalist conservatives go wrong. There is no objective value. Obje- value is subjective. So what we decide to value is isn't objective until we've decided in a state of freedom what we care about. So if I'm shopping and I'm looking at gas stove and electric stove, I say, what do I care about? And then I embody that and I show that in the real world by actually trading something that value for me, my money, for what I actually value, which in this case is a gas stove because I like them. They're great. You know, uh, if that's if that's what I want to do. And then the government steps in and says, no, no, no. I know this is mutually beneficial. I know this solves your problems. I know this embodies your values. But our values of safety are more important. So get out of that. No, I'm going to say no. That, that, that is where the offense really should be. I know it's hilarious, but it's also, we should be offended by that kind of infantilization. Is that a word? Infantil- infantilizing. I of, believe it is a word. Yeah. <laughs> we should be respected with dignity as, as citizens, not treated like children. 100%. 100%. Well, and it's interesting because you mentioned trade-offs. I mean, and I assume, I haven't dug all the way into this issue, but I assume that the impact on climate is probably a part of the justification for why this needs to occur, right? I mean, getting ourselves off of natural gas, off of fossil fuels and all that stuff. Electric is just deemed to be better, but there are trade-offs there as well. Instead of burning a fuel locally, right? You're you're using electricity that is possibly generated by some sort of fuel burning plant somewhere far, far away, right? So mm-hmm. it sort of just creates that trade-off in terms of where that fuel is being used, mm-hmm. right? It's an interesting problem because uh, it it doesn't it isn't intuitive, right? People will look at it and say like, well, natural gas is cl- is is uh, is a is a fossil fuel, and electricity can come from something else. But keep in mind that electricity currently comes almost exclusively from fossil fuels and hydroelectric and nuclear. A very small percent is in those other fields. Now, should it grow? That should be a market decision. That should be what provides the most value to the customer. 
Uh, and one of those values could be the climate. They could be like, hey, I want it to be as low impact on carbon as possible, but that should be up to the values of the consumer. The other one is, what is the question of, is natural gas like a better improvement on where we're at? So most decisions in the marketplace in our life is actually made at the margin. It's not made as an absolute decision. It's actually a bad way. Our philosophers run into this problem all the time. They take the ideal and they say anything short of the ideal is not good. And that's that's just bad philosophy. It's actually the next step towards the good that is actually the best. It's the marginal gain that is the most important thing to focus on. So, uh, the for example, in climate, if you're really concerned about that, then you would be a massive supporter of natural gas. Why? The fracking revolution of the mid-2000s changed the calculus on climate completely. And here's why. We got way more natural gas, which is much more efficient and lower carbon than coal. Simple as that. Right. That, the, the reason why the United States is one of the few countries that actually was able to succeed the climate, the Paris Climate Accords and actually hit our goals was because of fracking, not because of spending on solar panels and wind. It was fracking. Wow. So the, and that was because of a technology of a person trying to pursue profit in, in, uh, in getting more oil out of the ground that it happened to save the climate by that much more if, if that's what you're concerned about. So there was some positive externality, if you will, in an economic term mm -hmm. to someone seeking profit in mm -hmm. that sense. Yeah, it was unintended consequences of just trying to seek profit. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems it, like but, but in a way that is unintuitive because if you've, if you've already decided on the solution, oh, here's another white one, knowledge. If you've already decided on the solution, it's difficult to find the solution, right? So if you say, I already know what, I don't, if, if in reality, in the physical reality, you haven't gotten the solution, but you've already put in your mind what the solution is and you're not open to, you know, finding that solution, you're less likely to find the solution, right? Because you've centrally planned, you've decided that you already have all the knowledge that you don't have. And so you're going to, you're going to embody in the real world, a mental model that's inaccurate to the world that you're in. Mental model is this idea. We all, we all have like a, because I was like, I said that word and I was like, well, people probably don't know that word. Um, mental model is this idea that we have an imperfect picture of reality, right? That reality that our brain is modeling on a lower level of resolution what's actually in the world. The world is complex. So we boil it down to a lower level of resolution. On your gas stove. Yeah, exactly. In our brains. Uh, and we operate based upon our success operates on how accurately our mental model reflects reality. So what I'm saying is that if we if we too early attach to knowing something we don't know, then we are less likely to discover the thing that we need to know. That totally makes sense. And it's it's often it's a leaping to a conclusion, right? right? I know that the only way that we're going to save the planet is through solar panel investment, right? If you do that and you said no more research on natural gas, we wouldn't have been able to make the gains on climate reduction in the mid 2000s. That's a reality. Those bets should be made decentrally because that's the best mechanism for discovering the knowledge that we need. I love it. That's fascinating. And now I'm thirsty. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Zesty Beverages. They're on a mission to un the standard American diet by crafting drinks with fewer calories and more nutrients from real food. Their lineup of delicious offerings now includes Electric Peak Yerba Mate, postbiotic sodas, keto-friendly, ready-to-drink margaritas, and hard teas. Wondering what a postbiotic soda is? Well, head on over to ZestyBev.com to learn more and find a retailer near you.
Once again, check them out online at ZestyBev.com. That's Z-E-S-T-Y-B-E-V.com. Thank you, Zesty Beverages. Yeah. This beverage break brought to you by Electric Peak Tea <laughs> from our friends at Zesty Beverages. This stuff is so good. I mean, like, I can't imagine being in a situation where we got such a great sponsor right off the bat. Bam. It's almost like we know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, hey, if it was some, like, not good tasting drink, it's but true. it is so good. We could have done so much worse for a first sponsor. You know? <laughs> All right. Yeah. Looking at you, Coca-Cola. Get out of our way. Hey. Yeah. We don't need your... Corporate dollars. <laughs> I love it. Well, you added a bunch of stuff to, like, kind of our talking points today. Like, what do you want to dive into? Oh, man. I don't even remember. Do you have it up? I do. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. We've got uh, in the news this week, study finds Russian disinformation played an inconsequential role in the 2016 election. Okay. What really irritates me here <laughs> is how the election denial situation started in 2016 and how infrequently that's actually understood or covered. The, the idea that the Russians stole the election is so repugnant to me, right? On two levels. One, there's the, the lack of evidence, right? <laughs> All right, the lack of real evidence of systematic bias. And if we were talking about that the, uh, the people counting the ballots were corrupt, then we'd have a very high standard of evidence, right? If you're a liberal. But if you're a conservative, you're like, well, of course they are. <laughs> Which is <laughs> right. bad thinking. It's not, that's not good systematic like thinking, right? If you're going to understand something, you need to know the means, the material, the, the, the means to do it, the material evidence that support your theory, and the motive to do so. And there's too many places where those three don't match up to say that either that the 2020 elections were stolen and definitely that the 2016 elections were stolen. And the fact that we're not that the consensus of the public is that we're all falling into two cans rather than saying, no, you guys, there's no good evidence for any of these theories. Shut up and get to telling me about how you are going to make things better. Right. That's, that's what drives me crazy. And in the places where there are material evidence, it's just bad motive evidence. Places where there's bad, good means evidence, there's no material evidence. And I just want to see all three of those things. And I'm open. Like I said earlier, I had a big thing on openness. I'm, oh, I'm open to it. You know, I mean, it's possible if, if I was a corrupt politician, the rise to elections. Yeah, of course. If our politicians corrupt often. So therefore, could it happen? Sure. But uh, you got to give me a better argument than what I'm saying. Uh, and then to have it confirmed with the Twitter files is too delicious not to, not to mention, uh, especially in an era where it's, it's be decided, if you look at the mainstream media right now, that Republicans are election deniers and Democrats are election acceptors, right? which is just a silly paradigm. Yeah, right. I mean, to watch, yeah, from 16 to 20, mm -hmm. you know, the Democrats were denying the 16 election, Republicans deny the 20 election. Both sides do it, right? right. We need to be honest about that it's like spending we should we really just need to condemn both sides and say everyone do better yeah. stop it right that should be the mainstream center-right conclusion i don't know what the center left's going to do i don't know how they reconcile this stuff right <laughs> they could be oh wait i didn't get to my second biggest beef here our state department interferes on so many elections to be mad about the russians interfering with ours is so hilariously absurd <laughs> We interfered in the 1996 elections in Russia, for example. It's a major reason why Boris Yeltsin wasn't actually overthrown by the commies back in 2016, in 1996, who then went on to appoint, guess who? Putin. Putin. <laughs> Imagine that. Right? So uh, the post-Soviet situation and what we've done in, you know, yeah, what we did in Ukraine, Belarus, uh, things I mentioned in the last podcast that I was on, uh, it, it's so crazy to me that we, we could, with such indignity, with so little 
self-reflection be like, how could you interfere with an election? It's like, that's like <laughs> our bread and butter. What do we, <laughs> oh man. I love it. Well, you know, speaking of double standards and things, um, <laughs> Biden found with improperly stored classified documents oh, yeah. in two oh, locations, yeah. not just one. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 who was surprised? Is anyone surprised by this story? I can't imagine that anyone's surprised. Yeah. I, I think this is just commonplace, right? I think that's the bigger story here is it's like, I mean, I'm sure, I think Obama took documents. Isn't that like understood? I'm not sure if it is or not. I don't want to say that as a fact and have it not be true, but I'm pretty sure like mm. every president kind of like keeps mementos and things like that. And I don't know if, you know, any of the documents that were discovered in Biden's locations are consequential uh, any more or less so than the ones that were found at Mar-a-Lago. But, you know, I think it seems like a nothing burger to me, honestly. To be to be fair, yeah. Well, I I like the come upping story here. You know, like the the biggest deal in the world is that Trump has the nuclear launch codes in Mar-a-Lago, <laughs> one week, and then just a little while later, actually Biden's out too. And in fact, we don't know how widespread the problem is. Um, the Defense Department doesn't know how many tanks we have. <laughs> right, yeah. they've failed every audit of the Defense Department forever with like trillions of dollars. Yes, kind of yes, yes, not billions, trillions of dollars. Right. And uh, are we that surprised that papers are not appropriately handled? You know, we got we got Stinger missiles going on to Craigslist in Ukraine. You know, seriously? Like, yeah. Oh, you did you see that story? No. Oh, that was some time ago. Yeah, that was after the first like investment. Uh, there was investment. <laughs> they got a. There was a screenshot of like some guy trying to sell, you know, some U.S. arms in Eastern Europe. Uh, obviously from the Ukraine conflict, you know, so like our ability as like the whole idea that the government is this hyper. Okay. So two criticisms that they, that they got, the government is such a hyper organized thing that it's a grand conspiracy, you know, that, that, that they're super competent is obviously absurd. Second, that the faith that some kind of national conservatives have in the intelligence and state department is just so misplaced. And I just really wish we could get on top of that in a more consistent point of view from our friends on the center right, that there is, that we really ought to just trust these people to do all the right things. When I mean, do, you, do you feel like that's coming around now with these Twitter files? The, there's a big difference between people consistently understanding the problem and just saying, well, the problem is the person's in power, right? Mm -hmm. So I have a good example. Foreign policy is a good example of this, right? In foreign policy, you'll have these people who spent the entire of the Bush regime saying how evil the war in Iraq is uh, and how bad Bush is. And then turning around and saying, you know, but Bush made all the right decisions when it came to denuclearizing, you know, Eastern Europe, right? Uh, or sorry, not denuclearizing, uh, removing the nuclear treaties in Europe. Uh, which is something that George W. Bush did. Uh, you'll have the exact same person take both of those positions, right? And that's because they're not embracing a systematic philosophy or orientation to the world. What they're doing is they're playing politics. And so, and, and right now, for example, we had all these Republicans vote against Ukraine spending not too long ago, but now the Republicans are in control of the House. It's not going to stop. I mean, because that was all politics and that was about leadership. Right. Now leadership is better. So that is okay. Right. Uh, I, I'm, yeah, the, I'm a skeptic of overall change based upon a short-term political story. The question is how many people wake up from it, right? The individual is capable of saying that I need to find a coherent worldview that allows me to explain things in a way that makes sense to me 
And therefore, I need to approach this from a philosophical point of view. But that's not how politics is done. Right? That's only done in the sense of like in the media, you can say, hey, you said this at one point, but then you're doing this now. What's up? And stick somebody with that. But that's just a weapon. That's just a that's just a shot. That's not a no one's ever going to change their philosophy based on that. Right. Well, I mean, and speaking of sort of this like political theater issue that you bring up, um, Dave Smith had a pretty awesome tweet on this same topic now as the Republicans are quote, pushing to abolish the IRS, right? Or introducing legislation to do that. He says, quote, uh, Republicans are pushing, abolishing the IRS, cutting military spending, investigating government criminality and other great ideas. For one simple reason, it can't possibly get through the Dem-controlled Senate and White House. When they controlled everything, they pushed Space Force. Mm-hmm. Does that sort of speak to the same the same issue of like, they're just sticking something to the other side, knowing that like, well, this isn't ever really going to happen, but we're going to use it as a political football to sort of win points with the base? Is that mm-hmm. sort of the issue? That's a political calculus, and I'm sure there's some people in the Republican Party make that. Not everybody. Some of those people are true believers. I'm just imagine Thomas Massey is probably been, yeah, he's probably in there saying, I've been wanting to do this all along. Let's get to it. And 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 symbolism, symbolism is important in politics, right? It is important to send signals. It's important to fight fights that are realistic. Right? No one thinks that anyone's going to abolish the IRS, even if they had all the Republicans in both chambers and a Republican president, they're not going to do that. Not well, anytime it, soon anyways. Well, what it does do is put the Democrats in the position of having to vote to, you know, approve or defend mm-hmm. the IRS in the eyes of a bunch of people who kind of probably now feel under the gun with this whole, you know, taxing your Venmo transactions thing and 87,000 new IRS agents and all this. It, it does put them in a politically disadvantageous position where maybe they do have to reconfigure their, their right. stance on that, right? Right, yeah, I, I think that's right. And, but the, uh, that's the, the gamesmanship. The symbolism is taking that a step further, which is that I'm trying to create an ideological divide and demonstrate where I'm at, right? And that the mechanism for that can be those symbolic votes. And the symbolism itself is that there is, that there is a battle to be had, right? And hopefully that gets other people involved and interested in it from a Republican Party strategy standpoint. Uh, how much that actually makes a difference, I, I'm pretty skeptical of um, when it comes to practical policy change. But I do think it's important. Right? Those sim- those symbolic votes make a difference for sure. Yeah. Well, it seems like the the Freedom Caucus is at least making some waves and creating some some entertainment for us, if nothing else. Right. Mm-hmm. I love it. Uh, and and the fact that this all came out of speaker votes, uh, uh, the speaker battle is a big part of that. Uh, and turning things like the Church Commission. Church style commission. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to circle back to something you said in the last episode, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did a bad job about uh, connecting two dots that were floating out there in that podcast, which is that the church style commission is a good reference to uh, what happened back in the 1970s with a congressman church who was uh, basically what happened is in a given year, a bunch of revelations happened about the intelligence community, which caused this church commission uh, to be formed, which was outside the intelligence committee that usually was there and out of the church committee actually became the modern intelligence committee where they changed a bunch of things. But you you can find uh, the, okay, so starting the story at the beginning, maybe starting the story from where most people would pick up on. Everyone remember Edward Snowden, right? In the NSA. Of course. Yeah. So they, there was a point where Edward Snowden decided to go public because Clapper, the guy who was in charge of the NSA was before the intelligence committee and said, there is no, we do not have any programs that mass spy on American citizens. And he was a contractor. He looked at that and said, bullshit. You know? 
<laughs> to put it in a rural colloquial way, that is not at all true. In fact, that's what we're doing. So he released all these documents and it created the whole, whole thing there. Well, there was a time where the NSA was not a thing people knew about. It was a secret agency that existed off the books that the American public was not familiar with. Now, let me ask you real quick. Can you be a republic and have entire agencies be not known to the voting public? Is that a, what a republic does? I'm going to go ahead and say no to that. <laughs> the, the time period after the World War II, when we had global world dominance, uh, militarily, economically, and so many other ways, the actions of the U.S. You know, State Department was largely to turn us into something that was not a republic anymore. There was all kinds of other things that were eating away at that. You could put Wilder Wilson, you could look at different parts of, you know, how we turn things that weren't really up for democratic debate into some things that were. Um, but I think the State Department changes are most embody that when it comes to black budgets, right? When it comes to the intelligence agencies. So what the Church Church Commission did is it brought a lot of that to the surface. Things like you, you might have heard of this, MK Ultra. That was the Church Commission. Um, the uh COINTELPRO. You're familiar with that one? Counterintelligence program? Yeah, uh, that was specifically on civil rights leaders in the, in the United States, right? So it, in, in the charter for the CIA, it specifically spo it says they cannot operate here in the United States. Well, what they didn't anticipate was that they would work with the FBI to do it. And then on, on top of that, do that directly. Um, so MKUltra, of course, was giving people, it was a mind control program experimenting on American citizens abducted and or people who were, uh, I, I don't know how to, I don't, I don't know how you articulate, like I signed up for, to be a troop trooper in the U S military. And they said, here's a non-voluntary program. You have to enter. We're going to give you a lot of drugs and see if we can brainwash you. Um, and just to be clear, like, I mean, a lot of people would look at that as a conspiracy theory, but I mean, that is factually, that is factually existent. what happened. Yes. That d did exist. It actually gets crazier than that. It's not just the military experiments on soldiers. It's also we got a bunch of soldiers to go to parties in California and hand out LSD in enormous qualities, quantities funded by taxpayers. Sounds like a great party. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, it, it created a blowback they didn't anticipate. Well, was that the counterculture movement? Yes. No way. Yes, yes. Like there's, there's, there's some interesting evidence in that space about that. Now, what their aims were, we don't know exactly. But the, but the hypothesis is that the aims were to to make people go crazy and to demonstrate how crazy this pro peace activist movement was to discredit them mm -hmm. fascinating right so what it turned into was you know even bigger more and people were like wow this is actually very enlightening for us on several levels and it has downsides and you can get bad trips and there was all kinds of bad stuff that happened with it too don't get me wrong uh but and i'm not endorsing the use of lsd what i'm say, suggesting is that the government used it as a tool of public manipulation against American citizens. That is not what a republic does. They serve us. They serve us, <laughs> not the other way around. So we're not there to, to, to be ruled by them, but that's exactly how they treated us. Uh, Project Mockingbird was another part of the church commission, which is why I talked about last time. And basically what that was, was inserting and creating influence amongst media personnel in the United States in order to uh, tampen down with the media, which there was only a couple of media companies at the time, the uh, um, uh, opposition to the Vietnam War. So those sorts of things getting brought up, in a, those aren't what the extension of this church community is going to be. It's about other kind of weaponization like the FBI. But I'm, I'm really hoping that they bring up stuff like the IRS, for example. I mean, if, he, if those who have been around the movement for a long time, back in 2010, the IRS was coming after nonprofit 
conservative groups in mass. I didn't know a single person in the kind of atmosphere of the Tea Party to the Ron Paul movement who didn't have an audit that year. If you were at all had any assets, I mean, we were college students, so we didn't have any money. So they, they couldn't come after us. <laughs> they didn't care about but, me. <laughs> but uh, the uh, all the adults I knew were dealing with that, and like, how do we organize? And like the the outright corruption of the IRS back then, and then you know that could get weaponized the other way around. So I, I'm I'm ex- I'm very interested in how this is, this can work. I hope they focus on all that stuff. I hope there's not just like a Trump pro Trump anti Trump thing. I hope it looks at real intelligence reform because this is. This is such a bigger problem, not just and, and let's start domestically because that's what people care about. But God, if we could get to internationally, that would be so much better, too, because there's so many so many things of what happened in the world today have connections that we're not sure about. We will know 30 years from now. But right now, there is evidence to suggest our results of the bungling by the intelligence agencies. Potentially, we've got to be very careful about that. Well, absolutely. I mean, in the last week, we talked about the FBI's influence at Twitter. And uh, since we last spoke, there's now been, um, you know, new information released about the FBI influencing Facebook to censor, um, you know, information, not untrue information from credible uh, doctors about COVID. So, I mean, sort of validating this, that this rabbit hole goes deeper Mm -hmm. than just Twitter, as we would suspect, but didn't yet have proof. Well, now we have even just a little bit more evidence and I'm sure the rabbit hole goes as deep as we can possibly dig. Right. Yeah. Right. It's 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 a it's a real danger to a republic. Anytime you have unaccountable people who have the might of the monopoly of force to create outcomes, whether that's shaping the idea space or just creating a chilling effect, I would be remiss if I, as talking about the intelligence agency, all the problems that we have here, if I didn't have some part of me that was like worried about that you know worried about me personally my physical safety you know i mean or yeah any of those sort of things i mean that's that's a real thing or or you just look like or the fact that we've created a condition where you look like a kook just for saying that the cia could could, maybe they're operating in the united states oh my goodness you know where the average person does not know about these kind of controversies i mean they they should they should they absolutely should if you have friends please let them know that mk ultra was a thing (laughs) or project mockingbird was a thing (laughs) We will we will put some resources up in the show notes <laughs> for those of you looking for you know evidence and documentation about right. this stuff. It's 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 crazy to me. It's not a more mainstream thing, and it yeah. needs to become. And that's that's where advocacy is. That's where people's ability to, as an everyday citizen, speak up and say something, and just say, "Hey, Grandma Ethel, do you remember MK Ultra? Do you remember Project Martin? Do you remember COINTELPRO? Oh, you like Martin Luther King? Did you know that the FBI tried to convince him to kill himself?" You know, just little tidbits like that. Just throw that in and then, you know, the dinner conversation. See what happens. Well, you're going to get labeled <laughs> the the family kook. That's for sure. Yeah, because but then I, you, you come with the wiki receipts. You, you know? got to come with the receipts is the thing. <laughs> so we're going to put the receipts in the show notes. Yes, right? please do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. You can find on Wikipedia nowadays. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. All sorts of stuff. Um. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, I mean, shifting gears a little bit to sort of the cultural part of the segment. Uh, cultural segment, I should say, uh, one of the internet's most beloved contemporary philosophers, Jordan Peterson, is getting some uh, unwanted attention from the uh, Ontario College of Psychologists, I believe. Might have butchered that title a little bit, but they basically want him to go to uh, social media retraining 
They want to they want to reeducate him because he's been uh, tweeting mean things and apparently has offended about a dozen people globally who have written some form of complaint directly against him. Uh, you know, obviously in contrast to the tens of millions of people internationally who hmm. find his work to be, I think, you know, compelling and um, helpful and honest. And uh, so, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Seems like some some wrong think. Yeah. Re-education BS. You know, it's a, it's a, I don't know if this is a thing that could happen in the United States. It's definitely a Canadian thing, right? It seems, it seems hyper Canadian. Well, it seems like the logical continuation of kind of the way things have been going there for the last few years. Yeah. Right. If you look at what happened with the truckers, right, which became a very niche Republican thing that really should have been more mainstream. It's a fascinating story. I mean, a vaccine mandate getting that sideways and that obvious how bad the government as an actor was to its own citizens is that was happening in China. We, we would be, or Taiwan or, or Thailand or, you know, Russia, we would be outraged. Right. But it was just North of here. And everyone was like, ah, you know, whatever, whatever. It's just Canada. I mean. Yeah. Uh, one of the tweets is specifically about him saying, Hey, you know, I think, I think we shouldn't take the children of the people who are protesting the government. That's one of, one of the tweets that he's under trouble for. They're saying like, I think we should be very careful about removing the children from the people who using their, their equivalent child protective services from the people who are rightfully using their free speech to object to government policy. If that gets you in trouble, that is a, that is a dangerous, dangerous idea. Yeah. Talk about chilling. Yeah. And then of course, all of these are just absurd, right? I mean, like one of them is like retweeting a conservative member of their par parliament. Yeah. Like, it's Justin Trudeau's direct competition, basically. Yeah, right. Yeah. If that can, if that makes someone feel unsafe on the internet, that person shouldn't be on the internet, right? That, and they For should sure. self-select out. <laughs> um, if another one was just his, the entire transcript of his appearance on Joe Rogan, like, just imagine that. Like, someone is so nonspecific. It's like, the fact that you were on the show made me feel unsafe. <laughs> and therefore, <laughs> you should have your license taken from you. I mean, that... <laughs> but to get down to it, like, ultimately, the licensing board itself is the problem. No one should have this power to tell people how they can earn a living. People should be able to sue on damages, right? The libertarian vision is usually much more how can I create as open a society where people are punished for doing bad things, but not pre-crime, right? Not prohibited from doing things that I'm not sure will harm someone else, but I have on the ground knowledge that no regulator could know. Uh, so for example, I don't know that um, his, I'll do something controversial because those are the easy ones. The harder one I think is the Ellen Page example where he very firmly said, I think Ellen Page's decision to do, uh, I think, double mastectomy. Is that is that the right word? I want to say it's full full transition, but I'm not entirely sure. I don't sure know if she that. got bottom surgery, or he got bottom surgery sure. or not. But um, Ellen Page, uh, who's now Elliot Page, if I got it right. Correct. Um, transitioned. And that that what happened there, he criticized, right? That argument that, the, the best argument that the left has in that space is like, well, you said this, therefore some trans young people will feel unvalidated in their identity and therefore will commit suicide. Now, the problem with that is that it's not possible to know how many of those people might actually be benefited by this. I'm not saying that they all will be or that there must be some. I'm just saying we don't know that. 
So the prohibition on that beforehand, before we actually have any damages, is is so risk is so much my point on stoves. It's so risk averse to the effects of speech, right? If saying something I think is true, or making an odd mistake, or or many other things that we punish in the speech in the speech space, if saying that thing, if I if I don't have the space to be able to say it, I can't help discover myself or anyone else what is indeed a real risk to somebody. Um, and and just saying that, oh, studies show that this is a risk to teen suicide is simply is insufficient to uh, of a cause to prohibit someone being able to criticize someone else's decision to do a thing, right? As long as it's within the bounds of not, you know, actively encouraging them to harm themselves or, you know, there there are there should be real bounds there when it comes to like asking someone else to do something violent to somebody else. Like those are there there are real bounds of free speech, but it's yeah. not shouting fire in a crowded theater, that idiotic, stupid, ridiculous court case. Right. Um, which we should dive into sometime. We should. Yeah. because uh, that the details there are just are gonna blow minds if libertarians don't know it. Well, um, I, d- I don't know it, so we should definitely go into it. Oh, it has everything to do with World War One. Oh, I love it. I love it. Oh, okay. Well, well let's should we let- divert? Because uh, we are talking about free speech. It is a yeah, free speech yeah, issue, right? In, I mean, jump like, in. So, okay, so to connect the two dots real quick, in case we're kind of losing the thread, the the the, the licensing board is saying you're using this, this thing in a way that you shouldn't in Canada. Now, they don't have the same free speech as we do. They don't have the Constitution. They have uh, um, a, a intellectual and legal and cultural history in free speech. Um, which should be as strong, right? I mean, and traditionally has been, but I mean, obviously different times. Um, so the that board is saying you're using your speech wrong because it's going to harm people. And the free speech tradition typically says, well, what is harm? We get to we, we really narrowly curtail what that means. And so one of the things was a famous case, and I, I forget the case name, and this is why we should do an independent video on it sometime, but in short, it was it was against somebody who was protesting World War I. That was the plain, that was the accused in that case, mm. and that they're handing out anti-war pamphleteers and giving speeches about how entry into World War One was a bad idea was the same as shouting falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater because it would harm some people. And the problem with that harm point, World War One was a terrible idea. <laughs> it was horrifyingly bad. Speaking of harm. <laughs> 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 what if I made the case? And what if we knew? What if we had a time machine? We knew that World War One created Hitler, right? And in fact, what if we knew that that court case, had it not happened, one minute America wouldn't have entered into World War One, and we wouldn't have had Hitler then? We don't know that. We couldn't have discovered that because we didn't have a state of freedom. We had the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court of the United States, saying, "Well, this is the same as you know, telling someone to go kill somebody else." Function that they said, or saying something that creates the conditions that makes everyone unsafe. Yeah. Right. And that's saying, I don't like World War One. That is ridiculous. And it should never be brought up as an example for um, for that, because the entire the, the the entire context of what we're talking about there is totally corrupted by that stupid argument by analogy. That is genius because I had somebody use that argument to me on speech like two weeks ago. Mm. So thank you for that. So classic. I mean, it, it, I can't imagine uh, supposedly pro-peace Democrat types. Saying, oh, what's well, the same as doing, like, oh, wait, this argument works against you too. I think you might be referring to, uh, with pro peace Democrat types, an extinct species. <laughs> That's wow. <well, laughs> I think, you know, some people are still watching democracy now. They have to have a, 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 a viewing populace of some kind. I, I mean, assume. you're right. That's <laughs> true. Still on air. <laughs> There's all 12 of them. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 I am such a, 
optimist on some levels, right? I really want to believe that 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 person that is very concerned about corporate power and is also very concerned about the State Department at the same time still is out there somewhere. They're just very quiet. Just like I imagine for a lot of them, I mean, it did. There was a moment during COVID, early COVID, where it was like, "Where are all the libertarians at?" You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe this is their moment for that. It's the kind of the dark moment because, you know, the invasion of Ukraine put them on the back foot, right? Their natural allies are all on one side, and and I I get that. I, I imagine, I hope I'm wrong about them. Not, I hope you're wrong about them being extinct species. I hope they're still out there somewhere. I hope so too, for the record. <laughs> Um, but the uh, returning back to free speech in the Jordan Peterson case, I do think that there's a real um, uh, uh, threat there. Uh, I think our licensing boards in some states can't be like that. For example, during COVID, uh, there were several licensing medical licensing boards which were used to uh, try to punish doctors who said the wrong thing about COVID. And there, in in some states, that's prohibited actively by rule, some by Monta- or by code, uh, but not everywhere. So be aware of what your states actually say about these things. Um, and lastly, efforts to remove the power of licensing board are good. Libertarians should support them, and they should they should be on higher on the priority list for what we think about. I mean, oftentimes on a national scene, libertarianism gets brought down to low taxes, low spending, maybe foreign policy and, and monetary policy, but labor policy should be in there. Absolutely, right next to regulatory policy. Let me let me you know play the part of someone who might advocate for for a licensing board, right? Like. Mm-hmm. What if someone comes to you and says, well, you know, uh, for example, you know, the cosmetology licensing board makes sure that there isn't someone out there with uh, scissors and a straight razor with lots of opportunities to, you know, cross infect with proper improper sanitation and other things that they're not necessarily guaranteed to be well-trained. Like, what would you say to someone who, who brought that argument? Licensing can be a product of the marketplace, too. In fact, most cases, almost all licensing that currently exists started out as private licensing that was cartelized by the government. So if you're pro-cartel, yeah, that makes sense, right? If you're saying if to do outside that, okay, so what it was before, it was you've, you've, I as a customer had the burden to go to the barber and say, hey, what are your qualifications as a barber? You know, someone recommended you, you got that, but like, what do you got? And then you got the excuse to put it up on the wall Barber's license, right? And so like, no, I'm I'm qualified. I'm going to give you a good haircut. You're not going to get infected, that sort of thing. That process itself is, that's a good process I support. That's the kind of licensing that I'm totally on board with. The licensing I don't like is where you're a licensing board and your powers are to say, hey, I don't like you because you're the wrong insert thing from the wrong place. Don't have, you have 5,000 hours experience, not the 5,001 hours experience we want. Uh, you are formerly incarcerated. You are from the wrong state. You have the wrong, and then in the past, the wrong religion, the wrong color. All these licensing boards all have the origin of saying, oh, you're the wrong color. Is that right? <laughs> oh, highly racist. Yeah, a lot of a lot of licensing is to keep, uh, uh, was in the, back in Jim Crow, uh, was to keep minorities out of competing for, with whites who had the existing incumbency powers and they wanted to keep new entries out. So, so you're saying licensing boards are inherently racist? Inherently, no, I don't like that. I, I hate that. Well, okay, when progressives do that, it's like I, I'm sorry, I cornered you on that one. <laughs> this is bad. Not inherently, but they have been used that way. They historically have been used that way. Absolutely, and that doesn't mean that they are today. This, no, I think the effects on um, the formerly incarcerated are real. 
I think the effects on the on low income are real. Um, many of these regulations that they put in place on what it takes to get, qualify have nothing to do with public safety. Have everything to do with protecting incumbents. Um, so in a in a libertarian perfect world, for example, uh, this sort of licensure would be done by way of some sort of private organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just it would be voluntary, right? I mean, you wouldn't need the license, but the license would be uh, you know the equivalent of like a college you know, diploma or something, you would mm-hmm. say, I've gone to and done this extra training. I'm extra qualified. You can trust me based on the certification of this independent board that is verified that I know what I'm doing. Right. 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 And and then, and there would be like a, a good, good seal and faith of, you know, you're, you're carrying the reputation of the board of barbers or engineers or whatever it is that you're licensing. And so and then, then I would, I would see that kind of extrapolating out to like health licensing for restaurants, right? Like mm-hmm. you see a lot of places when you go to big cities, they'll have it in the front window, like a plus mm-hmm. from the health department or whatever. Obviously that's sort of a required license everywhere nowadays, but you would see that being a private license as well. That's right. That's right. And th- there would be other, you know, there, there could be examples where we do need government licensing. Right. Uh, but I think the burden should be on the government to prove that there is no other way for the market to provide this. Uh, and lastly, that there's real harm, right? And one of the tricks is a lot of this is not real harm. Licensing florists probably does not create the harm that you think it does. <laughs> Interior designers. Uh, there's so many other ones. Uh, there was a point, in, and I know this in Montana's case, there was a point where we had higher qualifications for emergency technicians, EMTs, than we did for cosmetologists. I think, was, you, I think you meant that backwards. Oh, we, sorry. We higher requirements for cosmetologists, for co- cosmetologists than we did for EMTs. Yes. Wow. Think about that for a minute, right? Uh, should there be requirements on EMTs? I, yeah, sure. But should they be as high as they are? I don't know. We should have a discovery process for that, not a centrally planned process for that. Uh, and and that would be a more risky society on some ways, but you would also have more rights in that society, meaning that you could be more easily get access to income. We have so many people right now who cannot get the dignity of a job. Uh, for lots of different reasons, physical capability, mental capability, or, you know, a lot of that is all tied into whether or not they get permission from the government or not. And I think it should be said as well that there are examples currently of private licensing mm-hmm. going on, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, the one I can think of right now off the top of my head is like NSF, right? Is uh, I forget what it stands for, but it's, you know, I don't believe that's a government entity. Mm-hmm. I believe it's a private organization that essentially, ver- um, you know, certifies commercial grade equipment for, you know, restaurants, breweries, et cetera. Everything we had to purchase, you know, for example, in the brewing industry had to be NSF certified in order to qualify, mm-hmm. which I guess there's probably a debate to be had about whether or not that is, you know, something that's necessary or not. But. Well, a better licensing regime is where the government just certifies existing private licenses as being government approved, sure. right? Or if it's at a very high stakes environment where you're talking about like doctors and engineers or architects or something like that, you could have it be where the government says, any of these three licenses work for us. In fact, we actually evolved in that direction because the government was too constrained in the first place. The reason why we have several different kinds of MDs and natural paths and all these other kind of licensing and medical is because we eventually did one and then we had to do another and another and another. So in order to, because we realized the more we constrain supply, the more costly it becomes. And then what it happens, the least well off are suffered. Right, where because in a situation the service of freedom, that they're offering becomes yes. more expensive as a result of the licensing costs. Yes, yes, they suffer the most in that in those conditions. The argument that what we're trying to do is arrange society so it's more safe, especially for the least well off, it is not necessarily clear that that's what you're doing when you make it so that they cannot afford to buy your service. So then, what they do is they subsidize it. 
right? Which has other downstream effects, right? This is actually the road to serfdom as well demonstrated, right? You you create an intervention and it causes the next intervention, the next intervention, because you can never get to the end state because the end state is impossible. Uh, you What you want is superabundance, where everything can be safe, immediate, wealthy, and free. And that isn't possible under their current modes of production that we have. So we try to create policy that creates the problems that we then solve with more policy. Uh, I got one more example of, of licensing. That's Re- a great Really one. quick though. Yeah. You re- referenced the road to serfdom. That's that's the book, correct? Is yes, yes. Uh, F.A. Hayek's Road to Serfdom. Awesome. Yeah. You can find that at libertyportal.com. Yes. Please go check it out. Uh, we should do a summary of it sometime. We should. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Your next point though. Uh, yeah. So uh, licensing, another good licensing example in, and this is, uh, so forgive us for folks who don't live in Montana, but I think you will find this at any state legislature in, in the country, especially in the West. Uh, medical, medical, sorry, animal medical techs. Uh, these are people that run the technology with the uh, the person who's helping the 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 horse or the cow or the dog or whatever. What, what, like what a, a, a vet, veterinarian, vet veterinarian, yeah. yeah, vet tech. Yeah. So the vet the vet techs for a very long time in Montana were done by a private um, licensing program that pretty much worked as an apprenticeship. And what happened is in 2015, there was a bill that came up and said, we want to we want to make this a government board now and force anyone out of this. And in fact, you're not going to do your apprenticeship anymore. You just have to go to a school. And legislators said, no, there's no schools. Why would we do that? And on top of that, there's no problems here. Like, what problem are you trying to solve? Like show us some statistics about all the animals are dying from unlicensed vet techs. Couldn't do that. So they went away. 2017 came back again. 2019 came back again. Each time getting defeated, 2021, it came again and said, oh, we have a school now. And the school is going to make sure that all these vet techs do a much better job providing their services. And all we got to do is give us a special monopoly to issue a license. And it passed. Without any real need in the market for anything of the sort. Nothing else changed. It wasn't like in... 2020, a bunch of horses just laid down and died because vet techs weren't doing their job. It's just the exact opposite. The same vet techs operated in 2017 were there in 2020 <laughs> doing exactly the same thing and and you know providing their service with no systematic problem. But the the impulse to try to control thing with government is that systematic, is that fundamental. Yeah. And so one of the things that we can do, I think, is 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 by opposing in those small areas, we can actually demonstrate a more consistent ability to free people up. Uh and and you know, and a lot of a lot of a lot of legislators voted for that, not knowing really the history there in citizen legislature in Montana. Uh, but also like just just thinking, I'm doing the right thing, right? I'm just making sure the quality is high as if it had no cost. But the cost is, is now you have to spend a bunch of money to become a vet tech when before, as a low-income person, you can just find a veterinarian who has a vet tech who wants an apprentice. Zero dollars. In fact, you get paid to learn. (laughs) So I take it that, uh, well, actually, I I should ask, is this any sort of priority to repeal coming up? No. Too many other important Too many higher priorities, right? I mean, like... That's that's the trick. And the Mon- Montana Code annotated is a very large document, right? So getting that thing boiled down to just the most needful thing, you got to start with the highest priority stuff. The things that are harming people the most. The, the things that so for an organization where I work for, you want to start with the things that have the biggest change transformation to then demonstrate your principles to the public about why they make the world a better place. That's the start, right? right. As opposed to um, 
starting at the smallest things and trying to change those because they might be more winnable in some ways. They could put more lead on a smaller target and knock it over easier. Um, it's still a uh, it's it's you know, it's one of those things, right? You gotta you gotta try to do things that build the movement, and it doesn't build the movement, right? Because the people who are on vet techs are like, I don't get why I don't I care about that. Okay, so here's a question from the perspective of uh, the you know municipalities or counties having any power to override state law or state regulation on these sort of things like veterinary tech licensing do they do they have any sway could a city or a county say actually we're not going to require that here no not not where we live so um a basic lesson that you could probably take away from no matter where you live in the united states different states are organized differently the further west you are, you are a territory state as opposed to one of the original 13 colonies or some of the original territories. So Ohio, Florida, um, I think part of Georgia. Uh, it, some of those states are organized differently. Uh, they have different kinds of organization. But basically, you either have a top-down state is the sovereignty giving delegation to the localities or a bottom-up, a commonwealth like Virginia. Localities give authority to the state. State gives some authority to the feds. Montana is not organized that way. Uh, most of the states in the West are organized as a state first. Um, I think the, exam, the exception is New Mexico. They have some interesting parts of their code that allow for them to do so. They, in fact, they actually passed right to work uh, a couple of years ago. <laughs> Funny. All the localities passed right to work. And then the state government came in and, and vetoed it. So they have more authority to go off script there as localities, but they still have that check as a as a territory state to come in and, and change that. So the state has the final decision making power on on that and I'm sure a lot All of questions things, in Montana. everything. Almost everything. So I, cities cities and counties have to fall in line behind whatever the state says. The, their first rule is does it comply with Montana code? And then does it comply with our own ordinances, doesn't comply with, you know, constitutional law, you know, things like sure, that. Sure, sure, sure. Wow. Yeah, they are creations of the state government. Which is different than other states. Should it be that way? That's a different question. Of uh, the, but the is the uh, what, how it is currently organized in law is, is yeah, it wouldn't they wouldn't really have ability to to do that, especially on labor law. There are some examples. There are some divergent examples where the state government very explicitly gives localities freedom to operate. Lots of examples of those, but um, not in labor. Well, the libertarian in me says. Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We and this these are some good debates that libertarians should have, I think, is the contrast between when should you use this what what level of government? When should you guarantee individual rights uh and not allow any government to make a decision on that? Um and how to how to balance those out and make those trade-off decisions. Um I oftentimes I call it a theory of victory, right? Um our philosophy of how we get to our end state is the most one of the most important things we could talk about as soon as we've decided on where we're going you know for sure uh, we don't do that nearly enough i don't think well it sounds like we should probably do an episode on that yeah for sure cool yeah well we've covered a lot of good stuff today yeah. david any final notes before we wrap up oh man oh we're gonna do our health section yeah do i that. guess we got a health section yeah yeah we're, we're gonna, gonna here. talk about some talk about some other stuff we're gonna help people out yeah well uh, I hear you're going to be competing in uh, February. In a <laughs> oh yeah, grappling. That, that, that looks like I'm like, hey, ask me about something I want to talk. About. I actually forgot about that. I, I thought there was something ahead of that. Uh, uh, well, there was. Um, and actually, I suppose folks will ha have heard it uh, on the episode I did with Griff. Guidance from pediatricians uh, encouraging obese children to take prescription medications and 
potentially surgery as well as young as 12 or 13 years old. Wow. What did Griff say about that? He had a lot of really interesting things to say about it. Uh, And obviously, you know, preface it by saying that he is not a doctor, nor am I, and Mm, everyone's unique and we can't pretend to be making any sort of medical decisions for anybody. But um, it seems that the diagnosis of obesity as something that is biological in nature in terms of not controllable by lifestyle um, is really unfortunate because it's it's disempowering, right? I think Mm -hmm. a lot of people who have overcome obesity with fundamental lifestyle change would take offense to that Mm -hmm. because they've done a lot of hard work. Um, And there are obviously different forces in play and hereditary issues and all sorts of things that are beyond my scope of knowledge. But um, if you want to hear Griff's perspective, you got to go check out episode yeah, two. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I'm fascinated about it. I, 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 I didn't know that's a, So they're asking kids under the age of 13 to yeah. get surgery. Well, the pediatrician, the, the, I believe it's the APA American pediatrician association um, could be wrong on that, but they've issued new guidance mm. regarding treatment for childhood obesity Hmm. which to me is interesting because not very long ago in fact still currently i think we're culturally there is this thesis that obesity or being overweight is not a health problem Hmm. right that you know we've got these plus size models and like there's this great embrace of body positivity Mm -hmm. going on which to me indicates like okay the culture the society thinks that obesity is not a health concern because if it were we wouldn't be encouraging people to embrace that we would be encouraging people to make incremental change and improve their lifestyle or their diet exercise more get better sleep whatever it is in order to you know regain a healthy body weight right i think the research probably suggests that uh, obesity is the root cause of a lot of primary causes of death for americans and mm-hmm. and citizens worldwide so for the APA to then be issuing this guidance to say, oh, well, obesity is such a concern that we should put children on prescription drugs and potentially even operate on them to reduce their body weight is a marked departure from that previous thesis, which isn't all bad. Mm. Of course, I think that personally, like resorting to <clears throat> a pharmaceutical intervention isn't uh, really treating the root cause of an issue. I mean, in so many cases, you know, you can end up with diabetes and be on half a dozen or a dozen different pills and, and still be sick and never treat the issue that got you there in the first place. And right. there are people that have made lifestyle changes and who are no longer diabetic. And I mean, Griff's story is pretty compelling as well. He was mm. overweight as a kid. Um, his father tragically passed away um, from coronary failure. He was diabetic. Griff was pre-diabetic for many years before he changed his lifestyle and his diet. Mm. Um, and that's part of the mission behind Zesty, you mm. know, is to, as they say it, unfuck the standard American diet uh, by, by, you know, making beverages out of real nutritious ingredients right. from real foods, you know, yeah, cool. and, and less, less sugar and less crap. There is a couple, I have some observations here, just reacting to sure. what you're saying here is, is uh, on the, I want to try to give some credit to our body positivity people real quick before I give them criticism. First off, um, 
you're worthwhile as a person is inherent to who you are. It's, it's inherent as you deserve dignity as a thinking, conscious being. Amen. First off. And, and people are trying to articulate that and saying that people who have weight issues are deserve dignity. I'm totally on board with. 100%. I don't understand. I, I, I don't know anyone who isn't. There's a certain like a, there's a certain kind of uh, internet masculinity. It's like we need to bully people again sort of thing. And we need to, to get people to change their behavior. We got to be kind of mean to them. Um, I'm a mean person, right? I'm not, I'm not overly sensitive, but I don't have any desire to make someone feel bad in order to get them to change their life. Other than that real talk, there could be consequences to your actions and you own those consequences. Your life is your life. You know, if you let it be defined by a bad set of habits, that's on you, you know, and people who, you know, kind of decide to take on the role of the victim, it isn't just that they, they kind of betray themselves in a way that can make them not have the dignity that they want for themselves, right? So there's, there's two, there's a two way street there that I think is really important. Both like the social reaction to the person who is struggling with their weight, but also what is that person's identity to themselves? And is it easier to just to say, I'm going to rearrange society or am I going to actually address the sort of behaviors that I have that are actually causing outcomes that I don't like? Right. One is, uh, takes a lot more radical responsibility. Mm-hmm. One, one is actually within your own control. Mm-hmm. And if I can stay on the on my my libertarian horse for a minute, which I think is why I'm here, right, is that that is an integrated value, right? Property rights, self ownership, those ideas are the same idea, right? We have a right in our property, we have a right in the in the right in our bodies, and we have a right in our labor. That when we mix with the natural world, we create property, and we have a right to that. That's very similar, not the same, but similar to our right in our bodies. That also implies that I have a responsibility for what I do and how it changes me and my world. Right, it implies a radical responsibility right out of our philosophy, uh, directly implied. And if we just say, "I want all of the freedom, but none of the responsibility," we failed to to actually be consistent with our own philosophy. It's not that I see it a lot in the libertarian movement, but I think I see it as we've missed an opportunity to articulate that because that's where a lot of our meaning comes from. When we serve other people and solve other people's needs. That's a meaningful activity, right? Whether that's a business startup or a nonprofit or or intellectual endeavor, solving other people's means me, uh, problems gives us meaning. Serving other people in mutually beneficial ways where they benefit and I benefit, that's a good thing. And we fail sometimes to articulate that and we fail to defend that. Instead, we say, well, the net benefits of capitalism outweigh the, you know, like we get into the nerdy, you know, economic stuff when we should be talking about the nerdy, nerdy moral stuff. And so when, how this applies to like the, um, you know, kids and surgery and stuff like that. Us as parents and us as a society that's trying to raise the next generation, we have a responsibility to get our kids to embrace responsibility. Um, and I, and I hope that we're only using surgery in ways that where that is no longer a calculus. That's the problem, right? Where we haven't failed our kids first on teaching good habits and are only resorting to, you know, major medical interventions when necessary, only when necessary as our last resort, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So anyways, yeah. And then, yeah, I'm doing jujitsu in a month here. I'm really excited about a tournament, uh, grappling industries and, uh, yeah, I like, I like jujitsu. Where is that? It's going to be in Helena. 
Sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should come. I'm gonna come check it out. Yeah, you should. Can I bring a camera and record you for the podcast? Sure, man. That'd be recap. fun. Oh man, it'd be hilarious to get, watch me get my butt kicked. Do on, like a uh, little sports segment in high def <laughs> <laughs> sports segment. Now in sports, David's getting choked <laughs> for all you kinky people out there. <laughs> Yeah, last last one I did one a couple years ago, and I li- missed last time. I got sick beforehand, uh, and my buddies just all went out to Salt Lake and had a great time. All without me, I couldn't go. I had my basket, my kids' basketball game. Uh, so, shucks, I got what I'm doing February. Nice, yeah, no problem. Awesome. And I, I I recommend jujitsu to everyone, not just because I look like a poor man's Joe Rogan, uh, but because. <laughs> Uh, it is, it is, it's just an incredible sport. It's just so much fun. And I know you do it some too. All right. I, I, I can't say I do because I have suspended my membership, but I have been meaning to get back there. Joseph. Get after it. <laughs> my brother, uh, got me an awesome origin gi for Christmas. Nice. I think as subtle peer pressure, uh, which I'm self-conscious to wear because, you know, I'm like very new and there's nothing more lame than getting choked out with a really nice ski. So <laughs> probably wear my crappy one for a while, you know, uh, okay. until I feel like I've really earned that nice one, but get that next stripe and then you ward yourself yeah. with a new gig. There, yeah, there, there you go. Yeah. Well, you got to get back into it, brother. I, I, I have found so much camaraderie in it. Um, I found so much connection to other people that I don't have, as much in common with, but except for jujitsu and, you know, competing in a last time was such a fulfilling experience too. I mean, it was, it was so neat to like go up against someone, my size, my relative skill level and really test myself. And like, how often as grown adults do we get that opportunity? Totally. It's so rare. Uh, and, and do so in a relatively safe environment or relatively, you know, um, cooperative and encouraging environment. I, th- I think it's totally worth it. Uh, and you know, in health, um, it may, it might, a viewer might be like, why are they talking about health in this libertarian podcast? But I really do believe that like, if we need to incorporate our values, we need to live in ways that build a foundation that are healthy for us as individuals, healthy for us as a, as a community, healthy for us as a society. And that starts with those foundational premises that are enlightening and libertarian in nature and have social and political implications, but start with us as uh, acting individuals hundred uh, percent, and, and incorporating our, you know, we don't have to be full of oughts. But we can share descriptions about how things, you know, are for us and share that knowledge so that people can improve. Absolutely. Well, I think the stronger we are individually, the stronger we are collectively. And, Mm. you know, the more you are uh, independent and and truly like not dependent upon the state or anyone else for anything that you need, the more you can take kind of that radical responsibility for um, for yourself and defend those around you and needed and uh you know really earn the the liberty that we all all libertarians want to uh want to have absolutely i love that summary that's a great way to put it awesome yeah i think it's a great place to wrap all right thank you thanks david thanks for watching thanks everybody thanks for tuning in to the liberty portal podcast for more episodes news and liberty focused content visit libertyportal.com and be sure to follow us on twitter and instagram If you liked what you heard on the show, we appreciate you sharing it with your friends and giving us a review on your podcast platform of choice.